I have a bet on number seven. I should be so happy if you would take it. You'll enjoy the race ever so much more. That's very kind of you. His name is Dover. Audrey Hepburn playing Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady, a musical based on the 1913 play Pygmalion, written by one of the LSE founders, George Bernard Shaw. In the musical, the character Henry Higgins, a pompous phonetics professor, makes a bet that he can transform Eliza from a cockney working-class flower girl into a member of English high society by giving her speech lessons. The scene we've just heard and others show a number of comic blunders that Eliza makes as part of Higgins's, let's face it, misogynistic and classist project to make her a lady. While the musical was set in Edwardian London, does it still reflect how we wear and reveal our social class in English society today? Do accents really matter? Is it enough to ape one's supposed social betters to achieve social mobility? And what's the cost of that to the individual? Welcome to LSEIQ, the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. I'm Sue Windybank from the IQ team, where we work with academics to bring you their latest research and ideas. In this episode, I ask, how does class define us? I'll be talking to a student who has overcome the challenges of being an asylum seeker and living in care to study law at LSE about the impact of social class on her life. I'll hear from a sociologist of class and inequality about the arbitrariness of what is considered high culture. And I'll speak to an economic historian who tells me that class will probably determine who you marry. Uh, Yeah, so... I originally came to the UK back when I was about four years old and I came from a country called Eritrea. Um, We were basically fleeing religious persecution. So I came as an asylum seeker and we arrived in Salford in Manchester, which is a very working class area. This is Sabrina Daniel, a second year law student at LSE. And then at about age six, I went into foster care. And since then I have been in foster care and, you know, It was an experience, like having three or four different families, but for the past like nine years, I've been with the same family and we've lived in Newton Heath in Manchester, so another working class area. And as for like education background, I went to state primary school, state high school, and then I received a full ride scholarship to a private sixth form. And currently I'm studying law at LSE. So it's been a journey. It certainly has. I asked Sabrina why she had chosen LSE. I looked at the league tables and I looked at graduate prospects because I think when you come to university and you're coming with the sole motivation of changing your background, changing your social class, that's what you focus on, the graduate job prospects. And so when I was looking at that, LSE was joined up there with Oxford for graduate prospects. So I was like, this university is the one that will make me increase my chances of changing my social class. Um, And so that was my particular motivation for LSE and it has turned out to be true. So you come down to LSE, you meet your peers. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that struck you about them that perhaps surprised you? Yeah, so I'd say growing up, 
there was a comfort in other people of colour. You'd assume that they were of the same social class or the same type of background or you'd have a lot of things um, that were familiar and, and similar to one another, where it's, whether it's household or the way you, you were raised. And I expected that to be the same at LSE. So when I met other people of colour students or like other black students, I just assumed that we would be from the same background. But actually, as you get to know them, when you're in conversations and they say certain things and then you're like, whoa, we are completely different people from completely different worlds. I also just didn't expect to meet so many privately educated students and grammar school students. And the, I think I know about two people that have been fully state educated. Um, and that was a shock because I think that's where I found comfort. It's with people that were state educated and from the same working class background because we just seem to get along. And I, this is something that I hadn't ever considered before because when you grow up within the same environment and everyone's the same as you, you don't consider what it's going to be like if you're in a completely different atmosphere in a completely different environment with, in a room with people that are nothing like you and have nothing in common to you and do different things on the weekend to you. Did you feel that you had to sort of code switch, change your behaviour, the way you spoke when you're here at LSE? I say changing behaviour was difficult, so I didn't. I, I just didn't know how to change behaviour. Um, I'd say I went a bit quieter, but as for other code switching tactics that I did, I'd say clothes was a big one. I, you know, I just would usually wear like Primark or H and M, but actually, there's certain brands here that I think other wealthy people would recognise and will signal what class you belong to. Like you're not going to expect a working class student to be walking around in Louis Vuitton, for example. But it'd be things like that or certain old money brands that people would be able to recognise. Um, and I began to recognise them because I'd see certain things on multiple different people or a certain brand that kept on recurring. And then I'd go and research it and then think, I need to go and buy this because it's going to help me fit in. And I think to some extent it has a little bit. Like it's definitely made me feel a lot more confident like just being on campus because I dress, I dress like everybody else now. Um, and... You know, I've saved up a lot of my internship money and ended up spending it on brand new clothes to try and fit in. And I think that to some extent does help because fitting in and feeling like you fit in, having the confidence to be in these spaces is a big part of, you know, faking it until you make it um, and helping me to kind of integrate a lot better. I'd say accent as well. At first, like, I just thought it was a joke when people would be like, um, you sound like a chav or, you know, yeah, which, which, is, which is funny. And I remember at one point as well, like I began to say it just as a joke. So somebody asked me like, where are you from? And I was like, Manchester, yeah, I know I sound like a chav. And then he said to me, um, no, you can't say that, that's classist. And that's when I thought, yeah, he's right. That is classist. Why did I just say that? So I began to, you know, pronounce my T's properly and say, instead of saying like 20, I'd be like 20 and making a conscious effort to do these things, um, which is which can be exhausting when you're constantly thinking about how it is that you're acting or how it is that you sound or how it is that you dress. Continuing to widen access to and participation in higher education is incredibly important at LSE. The school wants the most academically able students, whatever their background, to feel that highly selective universities such as LSE are realistic options for them. However, for students like Sabrina, getting into LSE has only been part of the challenge. She's felt that she had to change the way she talks and the way she dresses to feel confident in a way that someone from a middle class background would not. But where does the cultural standard that Sabrina is seeking to emulate come from? 
I spoke to Sam Friedman, Professor of Sociology at LSE. His research focuses, in particular, on the cultural dimensions of contemporary class division. He talked to me about some of his research that he and his co-author Daniel Lorison wrote about in their book The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to Be Privileged. They looked at elite occupations and how class affects who gets to the top. I think one of the, the key barriers and, um, and issues that those from working class backgrounds face is what we call in our, in our book um, a misrecognition of merit. And this is really the sense in, in lots of different elite occupation environments that there is a kind of dominant behavioural code in terms of the way you should be at work, the way you should dress, the way you should act what's appropriate and that that sort of tends to reflect um, who has done that type of work in the past which in this country in most elite professions is white privileged able-bodied men who over time have been able to embed even institutionalize in some cases their own ideas about the right way to be in the workplace um, that continue to be sort of taken for granted in our kind of everyday lives and uh, and, and what that means is that for those from working class backgrounds who aren't sort of socialized into those particular ways of, of, of speaking or dressing or acting or presenting oneself they have this kind of enduring mismatch and uh, and an often express a sense that the only way to counteract that is to kind of assimilate that assimilation is both incredibly difficult when we're talking about having to really kind of manipulate aspects of your identity that um that are very embedded and also in many cases feel quite understandably like very important to your sense of identity. And there's also a sense that even when that assimilation is attempted, it, it, it perhaps doesn't communicate the same sort of natural ease that those from privileged backgrounds would have, you know, and you often see this in phrases like polish that you get in, in these elite sort of occupations as seen as kind of some people either have or haven't. Sam has also done some work on how gender affects upward mobility in the civil service, which revealed some of the same types of challenges for people from working class backgrounds. I did some work at the civil service about the, the five minutes when you go into a meeting before the meeting starts. What do people talk about and how do they kind of present themselves, whether it's talking about holidays, weekend activities, um, their children, um, and you see all of these kinds of senses of of kind of what the what the appropriate um, types of behaviour are. I would often hear this sort of thing where people would say, "I'm just not telling people what I did at the weekend. I'm just not." And and, and actually, what then, you know, the word actually that one woman in the civil service used, um, which I thought was really powerful, she just kept talking about withdrawal, just this sense of withdrawal from. Those, those kinds of micro interactions and then how in appraisals or in sort of conversations with colleagues people would say you know you're you're standoffish you lack confidence and she would say you know if you take me back to my family or my friends in my in, in the town where I grew up nobody would say I wasn't confident it's so context specific um, but this sense that if 
If you don't feel you can be yourself, this sense of withdrawal, what that looks like, and then how you're read by others, it's really powerful, I think. Hi, I'm interrupting this episode of LSEIQ to let you know where you can find even more amazing LSE content. Our public lectures are free to attend and feature some of the most influential figures in the social sciences. To listen to past events, search LSE Lectures and Events wherever you get your podcasts and visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to check out our upcoming programme. You're listening to LSE IQ. In this episode, we're asking, how does class define us? Sam Friedman's research shows that the challenges facing Sabrina are likely to follow her into the workplace. We'll come back to Sabrina and Sam in a moment. If some of the cultural standards of elite society are arbitrary, the impact that they have on people's lives are not. I spoke to Professor Neil Cummings, Professor of Economic History at LSE. He's analysed historical big data on marriages in England and it reveals how class is an incredibly strong determinant of who we marry. Okay, who we marry. Basically, I've got the marriage records for every single person in the UK since 1838, till about 10 years ago. So you've got the vast majority of the population. But to look at this question of, say, the status background of spouses in marriage, you need far more detailed information. So there we've used a big sample of parish records, nearly two million. And these are Anglican parish records. And they have the unique feature that they show the occupations of the bride, groom, and then the fathers of the bride and the fathers of the groom. And you can look at the pattern of correlations within those records, and that will give you the underlying connection in marriage, but also the true intergenerational persistence rate uh, through the magic of maths. What does the intergenerational persistence rate mean? Basically, we could think about it as a number between zero and one. So if the number is zero, it means we live in a classless society where your background has no predictive power where you end up in society. This might be, you know, a utopia or a dream of many social planners. If the number was one, the rich stay rich forever, as do the poor, and there are permanent social classes. In reality, economists, sociologists, everybody interested in this question has debated where this number is. And it turns out the empirics of it are tricky. And so my research over the past 10 years has lent towards the revelation that number that number is far closer to one than we ever realized. And that has just stunning implications for, for how we understand our society and capitalism. So how come intergenerational persistence is so high? And the reason is, is that the underlying matching in marriage has to be very close. If you had random matching in marriage, that would actually mechanically lower that magic number, the intergenerational persistence number, down towards zero. But people have to be very alike in order to keep that persistence so high, just mathematically. Neil's research found that in terms of class, people match in marriage extraordinarily closely. They're basically from almost exactly the same social background on average we can all think of exceptions but we're thinking about what's happening in english society over 200 years on average and 
it's really interesting because it, there could be many models. There could be more women could be more likely to marry up, men marry down, or vice versa. But you're finding it's actually very symmetrical, um, which kind of enlightens me as to what the process of matching is all about. People ask each other questions. They get to know each other. And really, a lot of it is trying to find someone who is very much like them. I feel like a lot of people are going to be disappointed that you've blown the premise of a pretty woman out of the water with your research. But, you know, that could still be happening, you know, at the individual level. And that's why we're attracted to it in many ways. When you think about these unlikely love stories, we're attracted to them because we know damn well, you know, that that's not how reality works. And I think that, you know, you, you can have a woman from a from a very low background marrying uh, the, you know, into royalty. You absolutely can. But basically, when you extract to the population level, you, you that just basically washes out as random noise. And it's just what's happening on average, what's determining the dynamics of this social system, which we find ourselves being blown around like dust in the wind here, is, is are these gravities that, that tend to bind all of us, unfortunately, even if there is these exceptions. Neil says his research shows that economists have actually overestimated social mobility. Despite all our agonising about answering questions about ourselves on dating apps, there is a deep force that brings us back to marrying someone who is just like us in terms of our class. Now, back to Sabrina, who has her eyes firmly set on social mobility. You're interested in a career in law. (laughs) Do you see class impacting that path for you or has it already in terms of any internships you've already done? Yeah, I'd say class is a major factor for certain industries like law or finance. And I didn't think it was going to impact me that much if I just chose which firms said that they cared about social mobility. So some firms, it's very obvious that, you know, they're not really interested in that. um, And that is predominantly Oxbridge, um, ed- privately educated students so their firms I tended to stay away from anyways and so when I began applying for firms that you know said that they cared about diversity and social mobility I thought you know if they do care then it's not really going to impact me until I'd noticed things like when the other people on the scheme had work experience on their CV from high school at the best law firms in London and there's no way they could have done that if it wasn't for connections or or personal contacts at these firms because there's no work experience you can get like that in high school. Or when I was told that I needed to improve the interest section on my CV, and that was the only criticism that I got from my whole application. She liked everything just except that bit. Um, And I thought, okay, thank you, and walked away. And then I began thinking about it a few weeks later, because I'm now considering applications again. And I realized, what does that actually mean? By interest, I think they were trying to get out, tried to have more whether it's middle-class sports like tennis or hockey or something like that, or, you know, have some hobbies that would be attractive to the firm and to the clients of the firm so that I can fit in more because hobbies is a major signal of what type of class you are. I know when we talked before, um, I was quite struck by your your tennis story. I think you said you and your friend had been like deliberately thinking, yeah, yeah what kind of LSE society can we join? Yeah. Could you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, so we were thinking of what middle-class sports that we could join that would enable to be in those social circles of really wealthy students and typical students here at LSE and how, 
you know, we could try to fit in and also to boost our applications because firms clearly, they look for stuff like this. Um, but when we began looking at it, not only was the membership expensive, but it was also like 200 pound for a good racket. And so we were thinking, gosh, this is gonna be a really costly um, society we're gonna have to join. So we're considering something else. But that was one thing that I'm still considering now, just for the sake of trying to fit in within certain circles. Because I think there's two things that working class students face at university, and one's social and one's structural. So you can't participate in certain social settings like tennis because we just can't afford it. And we've never done it before and we've not had lessons on it and we've never played it when we were younger. And then there's structural as well, like things about getting an internship or getting a graduate job. While Sabrina is seeking to find common ground with recruiters at potential employers, Sam Friedman's research has shown an interesting and unexpected trend amongst elites by looking at 120 years worth of Who's Who, a reference book that appears annually listing people who influence British life. I suppose, you know, what we found really is that what counts as an elite hobby has really changed quite considerably over time. The sort of dominant um, sort of recreations of elites, um, sort of towards the end of the 19th century, or what you would consider to be kind of aristocratic pursuits, very much connected to the kind of landed estates of the day, um, very much connected to to kind of horses, polo, and and, and things like that. And I suppose, you know, when you ask the question, what makes them elite? I suppose what a lot of these things had in common is incredibly high economic barriers to entry. Um, you know, you needed to be very rich to, to shoot, to hunt, um, to, to be able to sort of um, play a lot of these elite games, um, as well as often having a certain type of education um, or orientation to actually understand the rules, to actually understand how to play this. So there was a kind of logic of rarity, um, both in the knowledge and the economic um, resources needed. Um, and then I suppose what we found is that that really changed quite considerably um, at the beginning uh, and early part of the 20th century, where you saw this kind of move um, in terms of British elite life away from from the country estates to the metropolitan centres and particularly London and the rise of what you might call traditional highbrow culture, um, particularly the arts. Um, and I think the really interesting thing there in terms of what makes those things elite was a sense that suddenly now you had um, an idea that there was um, a f- forms of culture that were aesthetically better or higher, right? Hence the term highbrow which interestingly was sort of embedded by the state um you know for example institutions like the arts council uh, institutions like the bbc that emerged at that time very much supported the idea that going to the opera the theater um, um classical music that these things were sort of better and as a result would um dedicate time to them on the bbc um, and the uh, or, or give public funds to to those art forms, which very much I suppose kind of embedded this idea that that those things were things that the whole of society should should emulate. The really interesting thing I suppose that we find at the end of this paper is that that that's really changed in the last kind of fifty or sixty years, 
and you see both um, to some extent um, these highbrow tastes still um, quite prevalent but very much mixed alongside what what we kind of call ordinary elite pursuits you know spending time with family friends pets come up uh, and a lot of discussion of, of of kind of popular art cinema um, football comes up a lot and that's a really curious shift we think um, about sort of how elites want to present themselves culturally I mean you have to remember who's who as a as a catalogue is a public document it's something that, that anyone including journalists often uh, actually look up to see well what, how do I make sense of this very elite person and I suppose our argument in the paper really is that in an era where economically uh, elites are pulling away and have been for for some decades um, there is perhaps a a kind of um, worry or a fear um, that they would be considered to be um, kind of out of touch and, and snobbish um, and that by signaling a kind of ordinariness um, in the way they present themselves culturally they are attempting to kind of forge a sense of cultural connection um, with the rest of the population. Ironically, while Sabrina is trying to find a way to leverage so-called elite hobbies and interests to help her ascend the social hierarchy, elites themselves are trying to appear more ordinary, perhaps wary of the growing inequality they embody. But what are the costs to the individual of social mobility? Sabrina told me what it's like when she returns home to visit. I'd say currently, like, I don't really fit in anywhere, which, like, accumulates to a general feeling of unhappiness to be honest because like I feel like I've lost myself so much since high school to now that I don't really have like a particular persona so when I go home I'd say I'm still the same that I am here which is in the middle of switching from being like really working class to trying to be middle class. I asked Sam about the psychological and emotional impacts associated with social mobility. I think this is one of the areas where the kind of way we talk about social mobility at societal level is, is really restricted and restrictive. You know, we tend to present social mobility as a sort of an, an alloyed social good. You know, the upwardly mobile are the winners of meritocracy. Um, you know, that is the enduring policy goal, boosting social mobility, and you'll hear every political party talk about that but you know having done now several hundred interviews with people who have experienced upward social mobility um, many you know not all but many um, experience that movement in a very class-ridden society as quite uh, dislocating it often leaves people in a sort of state of what I've characterized as cultural homelessness that they are sort of stuck in between um, uh, their origins and their destinations culturally. And that that sort of liminal state is quite disorientating, particularly, I think, in terms of relationships with your, your origins, in terms of families, communities and friendships. Similarly, there's this sense, you know, as we've already discussed, that you perhaps never feel like you fully belong in your destination world, particularly at work. And so I think there is a sense that that kind of emotional imprint of upward social mobility needs to be recognized fully and, and, and needs to be recognized in 
particular institutional settings in terms of how we support people who, who go on that journey, um, not just the workplace, but, but even places like LSE, re- elite universities, where, you know, which is often the first real powerful sort of institutional stepping stone um, of, of this kind of long range upward social mobility. And I think institutions need to be bolder at recognising um, and, and making people feel that they don't need to assimilate necessarily or they certainly shouldn't feel any um, shame um, or, or sense of deficit about those really important aspects of their identity. Sam believes that the behavioural codes that are routinely perceived as talent when they are actually just the product of a privileged background should be challenged. People like Sabrina are caught in a catch-22. They shouldn't have to adapt themselves to middle-class cultural standards to improve their career prospects and lives in general, but pragmatically, that's still the reality. And back to the question we started with, how does class define us? For Neil Cummings, the answer is pretty stark. I'd like to think that we all have hopes and dreams and souls that, that and all of this social class nonsense doesn't matter. But when you look hard at the data and you see it revealed in people's love lives and their life decisions, it seems like people are matching so tightly on class that it seems like nothing else matters. For Sam Friedman, the tastes and behaviours that reveal our place in the social pecking order and act to keep us in our respective social places need to be challenged. Regardless of how people feel um, about class, it's continuing to shape all of us, whether we kind of know it or not. And I think it does so in in two main ways, really. One is it's literally written on the body um, in ways that we really have very little agency over that are controlled by the way that we're brought up. It's in the way that we talk, it's in the way that we gesticulate, it's in the, our, our posture, in our language choice, in our intonation. Um, and that that's incredibly powerful, um, continues to be very powerful, particularly in a country like, like Britain. But it also, I think, sort of has a, an important bearing on the way we, we think and feel and, and assess and think about the world. And perhaps the, the best example of this is is taste, right? Is 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 the choices and preferences that we make, um, and and why those tend to be patterned in particular ways, and and that continues to fascinate me. And I suppose the the, the thought though that that I always want to come back to is this concept of of misrecognition that sort of flanks all of this, whether it's the embodiment or the sort of ways of, of talking and thinking or, 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 or tasting, which is that we continue to have um, a sense in this country that there are particular ways of, of both of those things that are more legitimate than others. Um, and that's why these things tend to be ordered hierarchically. But the, I suppose the, the goal of the sociological analysis is to reveal how arbitrary those sort of ways of 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 assigning value to one thing over the other are um because i think it's only in recognizing that misrecognition of you know some ways of speaking as 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 more polished than others it's only by revealing that or that 
you know, taste for classical music versus, you know, reality TV as being more superior. It's only in revealing how arbitrary those ways of, of kind of assigning value are that we can really tackle, I think, um, class inequality. Against this academic analysis, we have Sabrina, optimistically, but at a personal cost, carving her own path. How does class define you? I'd say class defines me in different ways, from the way I act, the way I talk, the way I think, the way I dress. It's, it is me. Um, but I'd say I try to not think of it as I have to stay within that class and that it's a, that it's a bad thing either. Um, being working class is not a bad thing and wanting to become middle class is also not a bad thing. So I'd say class defines me, but only to an extent because I'm currently in the process of changing classes. This episode was produced by me, Sue Windybank, and edited by Ollie Johnson and Mayan Arad. If you'd like to find out more about the research in this episode, head to the show notes. And if you enjoy LSEIQ, please leave us a review. Coming up soon on LSEIQ, Mike Wilkerson asks, is gaming good for us?